Are you willing to put aside all speculation and announce to the people here that you are not running in 2020? No. Overall, wages are down. People are working longer hours for less money. Obama these aren't illegal immigrants. Uh, 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 Noting that world leaders laughed at President Trump. Thanks for joining us for another episode of 2020 Vision. It's been a busy week in foreign affairs for the Trump administration, with fires on multiple fronts from Latin America, North Korea and the US trade relationship with China. Our guest this week is an expert on US foreign policy and will let us know just what's going on on the international stage and how that might impact the remainder of the Trump presidency and any change in the administration in 2020. First, let's have a listen to some of the headlines in foreign affairs shaping news this week. An attempted coup is underway right now in Venezuela. Gunfire could be heard, reportedly an exchange between competing military groups. Guaido has been outside of Caracas Air Base. He says troops are now backing him in what he describes as the final phase of a plan to oust President Nicolas Maduro. The Trump administration believes Maduro was ready to flee the country as late as this morning. But the Russians talked him out of it. This says President Trump appears to contradict his own senior national security officials when it comes to Russia's involvement in Venezuela's political crisis, appearing to take President Vladimir Putin's word on the subject. Turning now to more breaking news overnight. North Korea firing a barrage of short-range missiles into the Sea of Japan. It was clearly a provocative move by North Korean leader Kim Jong-un since President Trump walked out of their second summit in Hanoi in February. Global markets really tumbling this morning as the U.S.-China trade war has suddenly deepened. This is after President Trump had tweeted over the weekend saying that the 10% tariff would go up to 25% on, t- on Friday and that $325 billion of additional goods sent to us by China remain untaxed but will be shortly at a rate of 25%. Our guest this week is the co-author of a new book titled Ideologies of American Foreign Policy. He's also an associate professor in American politics at the University of Sydney. Brendan O'Connor, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on. Uh, Your new book looks at the relationship between ideology and US foreign policy and how ideologies during various US presidencies uh, sort of framed or shaped foreign policy. Um, What sort of doctrines or ideas do you think have shaped foreign policy during the Trump presidency so far? Well, not everyone would associate Trump with big ideas, and that's really what I tried to write about in the book and we wrote together was this idea that ideas can have consequences, they can be powerful, uh, they're fun to study, to try to understand the thoughts that are behind various US interventions, particularly in places like Iraq and Afghanistan, I looked at in the book. So with Trump, people would immediately say, well, look, there's just too many ideas or there's too many sort of half thought through ideas to make a doctrine. But I think if you pull back a little bit further, you see with all US presidents that there's a tendency to be driven by a type of American nationalism. And this nationalism might be called America first or American exceptionalism. And what is usually interesting is how that nationalism is tempered by more moderating ideas, ideas like liberalism or realism. 
But in Trump's case, I'd kind of argue that it's animated, that his nationalism is animated by his populism. And this heady mix of nationalism and populism, these are ideas. They're ideas that need to be thought through and studied thoroughly, but they're also dangerous ideas. And so with Trump, I think there's always a sense of holding your breath, getting up in the morning and thinking, well, at least that didn't occur. Uh, He didn't overreact to certain situations. And the thought of... uh, a terrorist attack during the Trump administration is something that's totally sort of worried me all the time of how Trump would react in this way of banning people as he's tried to from various parts of the world, shutting down US immigration, making it very hard for people to come to the United States, taking this kind of racist or xenophobic attitude to those who he thought perpetrated the attacks in a very generalized way. So those are all ideas. They're not ideas that maybe everyone shares, and I certainly don't share them, but they're ideas that need to be understood about where the roots of those thinking come from. And that's what I've been trying to do with a book I'm working on at the moment and, and some of the lessons that I've learned from my previous book will hopefully help me. Uh, you mentioned you write about uh, US military interventions in the book. What are the lessons from history, do you think, uh, when the US has taken that particular approach? Well, one of the case studies that I really spent a lot of time thinking about was US intervention in Nicaragua during the Reagan administration. And we saw that in that case, there was a very high death toll the consequences of that action of of supplying arms illegally at times to the Contras was very detrimental to the local population. Uh, the other intervention I spent a lot of time looking at was in, in Afghanistan, where the United States provided funding for anti-Soviet forces. And towards the end of that conflict, as the Soviets were really weakening, there was a lot of reports coming out of the US Congress. Some of the Democrats were arguing, we've got to pull back on funding uh, the Pakistanis who were f- putting money to Mujahideen groups or Americans, money going uh, for Stinger missiles Mm -hmm. to some of these Islamic extremist groups at the time in the 1980s. And we know the sort of consequences of that. This leads to the rise of the Taliban. So there was good advice. There There were people saying, look, we need to have a more moderated policy. We need to do this much more sensibly. And it wasn't listened to, partly because of this kind of boisterous American nationalism of thinking, well, anything that was anti-Soviet, anti-communist was good. Anything against the Soviet Union, we can support not thinking it through. And so I suppose a lot of what I try to argue for in the book, and I think if I'm trying to study kind of Trump as well, is to understand the details on the ground. Say, look, how much does America know currently about the politics of Venezuela? What does the population of Venezuela think? Before you jump in and say, okay, there's this bad guy there, Maduro, who the Americans apparently don't like. If you get rid of them, him, everyone will be happy. That The lessons of history from Iraq, from Afghanistan, from Nicaragua, tell us that's not the case, that it's always a lot messier and you're better off to leave it up to the locals to muddle through it. It's not going to be perfect, but you're better off not to intervene. You're better off to provide humanitarian assistance, try to provide development and use international organisations to work through these problems. Just with the situation in uh, Venezuela um, and the potential US role in, in resolving it, it's been quite difficult. I mean, I, sort of personally, I've, I've had difficulty following it and working out where everyone stands beyond the bluster of, you know, sort of statements on Twitter. Uh, where does the US and Trump stand now in this situation, especially in light of events like last week's uh, one-hour phone conversation between Trump and uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin? Well, it's a very good question because the sort of generalised Republican Party position represented by the Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, and also by um, 
John Bolton, national security advisor, is, you know, we've got a mighty military. Uh, this guy Maduro is a leftist. We're against him. He seems to be unpopular. Uh, why don't we topple him? Uh, why don't we bring about a coup d'etat? And so America has behaved like that in Latin America in the past. That's the old sort of, that's the old playbook from the Cold War. And these kind of Cold War warriors like Bolton are pushing this position. Then you have this curious sort of thing of Trump talking to Putin. The Russians had supported the Chavez government, had invested in Venezuela during yeah. this period, invested, you know, support Maduro, um, of saying, well, look, we're not in favour of you toppling him, neither are the Chinese. And so you get, in some ways, Trump arguing, well, let's provide humanitarian assistance. Now, it's an unusual route to it uh, through a conversation with Vladimir Putin. To think Putin and Trump are on the side of humanitarian assistance is, uh, is a strange thought, but yeah. it's, a good, it's a good outcome. Um, because, you know, there's a conflict where major superpowers are on different sides. Um, Trump's knowledge of Venezuela, I hazard a guess, is not extensive. Um, What the people of Venezuela want, they need to sort out themselves and they've got a constitution where, you know, there's in some ways two people claiming to be president of the country at this time. Mm. Um, And that hopefully gets worked out through, you know, organisations like the United Nations, regional organisations getting involved and trying to mediate some kind of peace rather than, you know, guns and, uh, and the military getting in where people, you know, more people will suffer. Uh, one other area of US foreign policy that's been a focus for uh, Trump's first few years in office has been uh, the relationship with North Korea. What's the state of play there now, given the failure to reach an agreement at that second summit? Well, I, I think it's a lot more desirable than it could have been. Um, this is an, maybe another one of the accidental sort of um, triumphs of Donald Trump. When we first uh, saw the Trump administration come in, he talked of fire and fury. Uh, he talked of, uh, you know, obliterating North Korea in a way that had never been seen before. I mean, if it was never been seen in Hiroshima, I don't imagine what this is. So there was a lot of tough talk, and I think a lot of experts were pretty worried that uh, misunderstanding, some kind of, um, you know, plane getting shot down, a ship being in the wrong place could lead to a really terribly tragic event. Trump wants to then go onto the international stage and say, look, I can win the Nobel Prize, I can be the greatest peacemaker since the Korean War finished in the sort of mid-1950s, and so he turns it into kind of theatrics. And in some ways, it's, it's a show. There's, there's not a lot behind it. Um, he has these summits, but he's kind of bought into this idea that he's a peacemaker. And that's, even if it is a reality television show as much as anything, I think that's a good outcome because it has taken some of the heat out of the issue. Um, I think the North Koreans have probably from some accounts at least backed away from this idea of having an intercontinental ballistic missile which could get a nuclear weapon to the United States, which was always a trigger for Democrats and Republicans to maybe do something militarily in North Korea. So hopefully they've realised that's something they just do not want to go towards. But it's an acceptance of the status quo, and, and to some extent, you can understand that if you know the North Korean regime is a terrible regime, but its survival depends on having nuclear weapons that it can, you know, contain its uh, sort of enemies by by at least having that credible threat. So that's there's unlike that's unlikely to change. Uh, denuclearization is unlikely to occur. But at least, you know, this cooling off of tensions is a, is a, is a really good thing. Speaking of peacemakers, uh, Jared Kushner, the president's son-in-law, took it upon himself to uh, help work out the situation in the Middle East at the beginning of this administration. Where are we at in terms of a, uh, a peace process and US involvement there? Do you know? It's tragic. I mean, it's a, a totally tragic situation. I mean, that's one of the sort of undertold stories of 
people like Sheldon Adelson putting money into the Trump campaign, into the Republican Party. There's a lot of funding uh, in this new campaign sort of financing sort of regime where huge donations are made by these incredibly pro-Israeli, sort of pro-Likud, pro-right-wing really Israeli um, donors in the United States. Uh, it has a, a very deleterious effect, I would think, on kind of straight sort of forward thinking about um, US interests even in the region. I mean, people like Walter Mersheimer had written about this, you know, some kind of decade earlier, but I think things are in some ways in a worse shape in terms of just being a kind of a neutral broker as the United States likes to present itself yeah, yeah. in the Middle East. This is not the case. So, you know, you have the Palestinian people in a just kind of desperate situation and a tragic situation. Um, and America playing, I think, less of a sort of an effective role in some ways. You know, one of the sort of fascinating things about Trump and trying to think about a Trump doctrine is how much does Trump really care about people living in other countries? I mean, the sort of whole American first rhetoric, part of it is that to be damned with the rest of the world, the rest of the world isn't too important unless it causes us some problems. Mm -hmm. And on the positive side, that might not mean intervening in Venezuela or it might not mean intervening in Syria, but when there's serious problems like refugee crises or the Palestinian crisis that, um, you know, the US is effectively supports the status quo or many of the bad things that continue to happen. Looking at the Democratic candidates for 2020 at the moment, are you seeing any signs that uh, the future of US foreign policy or America's place in the world is likely to rank as important to the major policy debates that come in that contest? Yeah, I think there's a really interesting divide. I mean, Joe Biden, I think, would, you know, as we'll talk about in a minute, would represent a kind of a continuation of the Obama doctrine, a kind of more um, moderated version of US foreign policy, but a fairly, you know, familiar sort of version of US foreign policy. Whereas people like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders have really been charting a path that we're not that familiar with in US foreign policy history, drawing on a few of the ideas from the early Carter administration saying that America has to kind of regain some kind of moral mantle in the world, that it has to do things which uh, live up to ideals that is very rarely ever lived up to. So you had this sort of soul-searching in some of their early speeches from both Warren and Sanders about a kind of very different and ethical American foreign policy, which I think is to be congratulated that they were thinking about that. And, um, you know, it's to, for those things to be on the agenda is quite unusual. I think it is, it's considerably um, more far-reaching than what Obama was saying on foreign policy, whereas with someone like Biden, uh, it would be, you know, it would be a, a more of a kind of balancing act. Experts would come more into play than I think they are always with, a, with, with Trump. Uh, things like global warming, I think, would be faced up to in a more scientific way. But I don't think it would be a sort of thorough overhaul of how America addresses the world in the way that Sanders and, and Warren would hope for. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you mentioned Biden. He, he's the only sort of current Democratic candidate with uh, particular foreign policy experience. So he was on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee for about 36 years, I think, 12 of those as uh, chairman or ranking member. Just based on what we know and his record, I mean, what would a President Biden doctrine look like, do you think, just based on previous experience? Yeah, well, the two really interesting things about Biden's history on the Foreign Relations Committee was he had a big interest in foreign aid. He, he had a serious interest in uh, international poverty. 
um, and you know people in the poorest countries in the world early on in his career, and people have uh, haven't talked about that for a while. But that was one of the things that I remember people congratulating him about. And then he was involved in a plan to kind of partition Iraq and got involved in this kind of study group around Iraq yeah. and thought a lot about the kind of politics of the Middle East. Uh, was involved in debates about whether the United States should continue to. Speak Spend money in Afghanistan, so he's in the thick of those, you know, really complex and sort of difficult issues. But as I said before, I really would think he would return to a kind of status quo that we saw to some extent under, say, President Bill Clinton, even George H. W. Bush, um, and under the Obama administration, where there's a sense that America's kind of range of options in the world aren't entirely sort of that broad, that there's kind of a range of options that are limited by America's responsibilities and that you try to carry that out in a in an ethical way, in a thoughtful way, in a way guided by experts. But it's not, it wouldn't be a radical departure, a Biden administration by any sort of means from, you know, what, what's been the dominant position really in US foreign policy since 1945. If a Democrat were to win in uh, 2020, how challenging is it going to be for the, that administration to chart a different course from Trump's America first stance and sort of restart these conversations with allies that aren't so obsessed with the more transactional elements that we've come to know from Trump's foreign policy dialogue? Yeah, well, I, I suppose from my own understanding of the major problems in the world, the first thing that has to be addressed would be some you know, global agreements on climate change. And so just to have someone who isn't a climate denier would be a very dramatic difference in right. the White House. And I think allies would be drawn to that. I mean, I think the Chinese are trying to sort of move in positive directions, not always, but some of their policies. Europeans have faced up to this issue a lot more than the Americans. So that, w- that would lead to a sort of, I think, immediate kind of goodwill and negotiation negotiation. How a Biden administration responds to Russia, that's that's complicated. Mm. I mean, and heightened tensions with Russia aren't something I'd look forward to. Um, Biden, I think, would hold those kind of positions that Hillary Clinton held, that Obama held to some extent. Yeah, which would be more of a chip on his shoulder, I imagine, given 2016. Yeah, yeah. I mean, pushing back against the Russians is dangerous because they, you know, they're kind of, they're wounded and... um, kind of nation in some regards. Putin is in some ways a sort of last throes of a sense of Russia as this kind of great superpower um, with wounded pride and and ego and all sorts of things that can go wrong. So just prodding Russia is one of these sort of massive challenges for the next president, working out how you try to cajole it to become a more reasonable and normal state rather than this kind of autocracy that you have there at the moment that wants to kind of throw its weight around in these petty conflicts in the Middle East and even get involved in Latin America. So that's it's a big challenge, but you've hoped that you bring allies on your side and you know, you negotiate your way through those issues. Australia's right in the middle of its own election campaign at the moment. If we were to see a Labor government elected on May 18, do you foresee much of a shift in our own foreign policy or perhaps a, a different approach to dealing with our relationship with the United States? I think Labor would take, you know, instinctively uh, a more critical view of the Trump administration. I mean, the politics, uh, you know, with both Labor and Liberals, I mean, they're both holding their breath probably when Trump was elected, thinking, what is ahead? (laughs) Um, You know, let's kind of lie low to some extent has got to be the approach with Trump. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's a time and place for being vocal about some of the bad decisions that the Trump administration have made, Um, you know, 
kind of hopefully trying to state, say something different on the environment, something different on the treatment of refugees. Uh, certainly the banning of people from certain countries is an appalling thing to do. And so Labor will be faced with those kinds of challenges of when to speak up, when to say something about the Palestinian issue. And those, you know, those, those create some kinds of degrees of tension uh, with the United States. But as we've seen with the Canadians and we've seen with some of the Europeans, you know, Trump, there's plenty of criticism of Trump that goes around and those, uh, those alliances will survive the Trump administration. So I think we, you know, we shouldn't get too sort of, uh, you know, merely mouthed and quiet in Australia and think, oh God, we can never say anything because, you know, within the United States, Trump is copying criticism all the time from his own party, from the Democrats. There's a kind of boisterous debates that go on and we've, you know, we should be part of those boisterous debates and get involved in them and speak up for the kinds of things that we believe in rather than thinking, you know, every every wrong sort of word means the alliance hangs in the balance. That's, That's not really true. Uh, Brendan, thanks very much for stopping by for a chat. My pleasure. Thanks also this week to the Babamara Brass Band and Ketzer for their musical contributions and to the University of Sydney's Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences for their studio assistance. 